0: Happy summer to all you Asymptote listeners and summery parts of the world. This is Leila Benitez-James for the Asymptote podcast and I'd like to first pick up on a bit of a teaser I left hanging in my last podcast. I hinted that we would be changing things up for our contest this year and instead of translations we are announcing a new essay contest and are thrilled to be able to say that our new contest will be judged by none other than James N. Coetzee. Coetzee was the first author to win the Booker Prize twice and was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2003. Open to translators and non-translators alike, this contest invites essays introducing a writer working in a language other than English whose work deserves more attention than it currently receives from the English-speaking world. In addition to receiving prizes, the winners will also be featured in our Winter 2020 issue, joining an exceptional roster of contributors from the past that includes Mario vargas Llosa, Laszlo Krasznahorkai, and Stefan Zweig, among many others. The deadline for this contest is the 1st of October 2019, so you have just a bit over three months to champion your writer of choice. So just now, where I live in Alicante, Spain, we are enjoying a slight respite from the heat or what may be the last fresh fronts of spring, but a couple friends in Madrid have told me that there it is downright chilly or too chilly for mid-June, prompting me to repeat a saying, which I once heard in Madrid, and I remember being told this by several older women, hasta el 40 de Mayo no te quites el sayo. Now, it's funny how happy accidents occur, because in this episode, I'll be getting into what is found in translation those happy accidents and bursts of inspiration that fuel a translator's own creative practice through working with someone else's work. This saying, literally, until the 40th of May, don't get rid of your warm clothes, could be translated, as my Scottish husband would say, as "Ne'er cast a clout until May is out and looking for the best way to translate this phrase prompted me to take a quick trip to word reference as i could not remember if sayo was the clothes you wear on your body like ropa de invierno or bed clothes like ropa de cama down in the forums someone had indeed suggested the scottish idiom pointing out that clute actually means winter clothes and can also just be a bit of fabric, but that May also refers not just to the month of May, but to the hawthorn tree, which is also called the May tree, advising those wary of being caught out in the cold to look to when this particular tree is putting out leaves and blooms to know when it's safe to start dressing for summer. This was news to my husband, and we ended up calling his mother, still in a scarf herself, as his hometown of Burnt Island definitely not received the summer memo who confirmed for us that the saying could indeed refer to the tree blooming when it got warmer or to the month but what gave me even more pause was seeing a very familiar name in one of the comments one from over 10 years ago from the 22nd of november 2008. Estoy leyendo la introducción de niebla por miguel unamuno y hay una frase que no tiene sentido I'm reading the introduction of F.O.G. by Miguel Unamuno, and there is a phrase that makes no sense. This commenter writes, he asks about the phrase el sayo de niebla, perhaps the cape or coat of F.O.G., but I was captivated less by this interesting image than by Miguel de Unamuno popping up in this particular forum after I had spent a week in Madrid working at a festival named in his honor. And after an especially magical trip to Salamanca, where I had visited his house museum and seen where he worked and slept, seen his library, his set of miniature playing cards, and a set of index cards with his tiny yet beautiful handwriting, and his iconic hat. Over the past two years, I have become involved with the Unamuno author series in Madrid. First, by doing some introductions in 2017 for the more or less monthly reading series. eventually becoming the director of literary outreach as we begin to make plans to launch Madrid's first ever Anglophone Poetry Festival. It's been really grassroots and volunteer outfit from the very beginning as the series started by accident on March 27th 2012, when poet and Episcopal priest Spencer Reese held what was intended to be a one-off reading on the patio of the cathedral where he worked. The reading was by Cuban-American poet Richard Blanco, and this was before he was selected to read at Obama's second inauguration. Then, in partnership with Bookseller and the co-founder, co-manager of Desperate Literature, Terry Craven, and scholar Elizabeth Moe, they started the reading series as more and more poets became interested in making the trip to Madrid to read. Reese was unaware that the series would eventually evolve into the packed and vibrant Unamuno Poetry Festival that took place this year in the last week of May, but they decided to name the series after Unamuno because of the friendship struck up between the writer and an Episcopal priest at the cathedral. In the end, the week of May 27th through June 1st, 2019, would see 80 readings spread across five venues, including a lecture series hosted in the historic Residencia de Estudiantes, where Federico Garcia Lorca, Salvador Dalí, and Luis Bunuel all lived and studied. Taking place in the mornings, these panels counted poet Mark Dodi, Laura Garcia Lorca, niece of Lorca, among the ranks, among many others. These talks included myself as well, as I moderated a panel of two other poet translators, local Madrid native poet Oscar Curieses and Jorge Vesel of Caracas, Venezuela. For my part, one of the most important elements of the festival was the bilingual anthology, which gathered one poem from each poet expertly translated into Spanish by that poet and translator, Jorge Basel, who you will hear much more from later on. The anthology was one of the festival's most important elements for me as it allowed for bilingual readings throughout the week, so that a mixed audience could be introduced to a huge wealth of contemporary American poetry, as well as a few writers from the UK and poets from Ireland. While the festival drew a mostly Spanish and American audience, one enthusiast for Chicano Studies flew in for the festival from Istanbul, inspiring hope that the series will continue to grow and become even more global in its ambitions. I named our panel Transatlantic, Translation as Bridge and Compulsion, as I sought to explore our impulses to become translators and trace our trajectories in finding poets from other countries to creatively connect with. Spanning Walt Whitman, Lorca, blues music, translating song lyrics, translating Sharon Olds and Marie Howe, the conversation explored how these relationships form a transatlantic bridge between poetic practices. What I thought was so special was that both of these translators are first and foremost poets. And one of the reasons why I added the word compulsion into the title is that they already had full poetic lives before they started translating, and this extra job of translation was something they took on against all respect for free time and sanity. I discussed the creation of the Unamuno Festival Anthology from its inception to its completion, as well as what is lost and found in translation. I was especially lucky to be able to sit in between these two poets who were really the Alpha and Omega of the Anthology project. It was at Unamuno Reading number 23 in December of 2017 when Michael Dumanis, Michael White, and Philip B. Williams gave an amazing reading when the idea for the anthology first came about. We met with Oscar Curieces, whose work had originally inspired me to move to Spain in 2014. Born, raised, and based in Madrid, but with a deep and long-standing love for American poetry and blues music, He was excited to meet some of the series' poets and learn more about the poetic and academic lives in the United States. As we left a restaurant, he asked if their work had been translated into Spanish yet or if it had been translated for the series. It hadn't been. Each reading, of the series, Terry Craven of Desperate Literature would make these amazing little folletos of selection of the poet's work so the audience could read along and have something of the readers to take home with them. Curiosus noted that, especially as we were going to expand into a festival, we needed to make an anthology of at least one poem from each poet and have it translated into spanish and to help build a real bridge between all these poets coming from the americas and a madrid audience his talk delivered in spanish got to the heart of his love of the practice and focused on a theme i found in common amongst many poet translators their love for getting inside a text no soy un Puedo elegir los libros que traduzco. Desde que me puse a ello, hace algunos años, siempre he entendido la traducción como un placer, como un juego. Pero es cierto que los juegos requieren conocimiento, destreza y también esfuerzo. Hay que conocer las reglas del juego. De lo contrario, no se puede jugar. Siempre me ha fascinado la idea de traducir los libros que más me gustaban. Es justo lo que os contaba al principio ellos, de sentirlos, de vivirlos I'm not a professional translator, he says. I have this privilege. I can choose the books I translate and since I have started doing this for several years now, I've always understood translation as a pleasure as a kind of game. Of course, games certainly require knowledge, skill, and great effort. You also have to know the rules of the game, otherwise you can't play. I've always been fascinated by the idea of translating those books I love most. Surely this is the way to be most inside of the text, to feel them, live them, know them better. This idea has obsessed me and continues to obsess me. He goes on to talk about all he has gained from his translation practice, including the benefits of being able to talk to living authors, specifically Sharon Olds, but also musing on the questions he would ask dead authors, saying that it would be wonderful to be able to ask Allen Ginsberg, which supermarket in California was it where you met Laura, and to ask George Orwell about how to translate what Napoleon and Snowball write on the blackboard for the rest of the farm animals or to ask Emily Dickinson about just exactly how long those em dashes need to be, and to get the true scoop from Virginia Woolf herself about the best word in Spanish for room, should it be habitacion or cuarto. Curieces also explored the idea that foreign poetry or foreign writing can fuel a writer from another country, perhaps even more than it can fuel someone, who was born and raised there, pointing out that foreign readers most likely have a much more nuanced and passionate love for Cervantes and can read them in a much fresher way. While the original idea for the festival was 30 poets sharing their work over one week, word spread, and we had just about 60 poets with us when everything was said and done. The anthology exploded accordingly and the monumental task of translating our varied brilliant but sprawling voices fell to jorge who leapt pretty fearlessly into this task even when the number of poets continued to climb so often the conversation around translation centers on what is lost and what we cannot carry over but both of these translators i believe because they are first poets talk about how much they have found and how much inspiration they take from the work. The conversation always moves towards what they have gained and found in the work. Take a listen to the sales portion of the panel and hear for yourself what he made of his challenging task. Jorge is a writer, translator, and engineer. His first book, Pajaro de Cuero Negro, won the Poetry Prize Fernando Paz Castillo in Venezuela, and his second one, La Carencia, won the poetry prize Federico Muelas in Spain and will be published in 2019. His poems have been translated into English and have appeared in important anthologies such as En Obra and Cuerpo Plural as well as literary magazines. He is currently finishing his MFA in creative writing at New York University.
1: I really love now that that List of poets kept on growing at that time. I kind of regretted it, but um, thank you so much for Spencer and Lila for enrolling me into this. I want to say a little bit about me because I um, I was born and raised in Venezuela, 79. and But my parents are from Spain. They actually left Spain uh, after the post war. And it was very interesting because as I think about the notions of translation, I always thought, you know, when I was a child, I would be home, and one thing came to my mind last night, which was in Venezuela, because it's Caribbean, and like in many places, you have a lot of the adaptation of Spanish. Bananas is called cambur. It's only a place where, um, if you go to another place in Latin America you ask for cambur, people will be like, what? <laughs> and it was very interesting because I lived in a household where my dad would always say, that is platano. Like there's a remark of what the Spanish should be. <laughs> My mom, I think, and you know, history proved that, she adapted much more. And she would be kind of building that bridge. And it was very important because if I would've gone out in school and I would say, I want a platano. First of all, platano is another thing. It's like a, the bigger, bigger um, mm-hmm. the one that you fry that you don't eat it as a fruit. But it happened many times that if you speak outside your home Spanish from Spain, you're Espanolieto. And that carries a lot of history behind it. So it was very interesting because I think that I have, I mean, and that has affected me a lot in terms of how I write and what I write and why I translate. Up to a point that people have asked me if I write in English and then translate what I do, because there's a need for neutrality in what I do, which I'm trying to break free now. But I wanted to bring that up because I think that that to me has, was really that expression of translation and it doesn't have to be in another language. So, you know, my, my actual work as a translator has been rather recent. I have started to work on, um, on bringing into Spanish the work of Marie Howe, who actually introduced me to Spencer, and then I fell into the rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then, thinking about, thinking about the work uh, that we have done this last month, um, you know, I, I was really um, looking at the different elements from, from the translations of Murray's work, and I think a lot had to be related with the translation of this beautiful book, The Anthology, which I'm very grateful that it came out so well. Um, so I want to actually pick up on that, and I think, you know, we're all here. Some of you have been, some of you have been translated, so... So I have seven reflections, because everybody loves lists, right? So the first one is that, you know, when we're translating, we make, uh, like Oscar said, we make a choice about the language in which the text will land. And we need to know where it's that because if we're building a bridge, we need to know where it's going to go. But that's so hard, because there are many versions of language. And I'm not saying that it's, I'm not talking about a Spanish or English or Italian or French um, or Chinese. I mean, I'm talking that there is no single version of the languages because there are regional differences, because there are cultural differences, because there are dimensions that we need to take into consideration for both consistency and accuracy for who is going to receive that. So for example, in our anthology, we have Annie Schumacher's poem, Driving with Tessa. And a lot of actions take place in a car. If you're in Spain, it's a coche. But if you are in Central America, it's a carro. But thank God there is one word that works for everybody. It's called auto, from automobile. So auto works. But then there are other words that don't really work, like driving. If you're in Spain, conduces un carro. If you're in Latin America, manejas un carro. Now, manejar also relates to managing, which then talks into other complexities. The great thing about it, though, is that out of context, we can get it, right? And, but, but it's really going to those, those small differences. And I just want to bring this up because there is something very personal that happens with the activities of the everyday. And the language is a little bit like that. It needs to feel natural. It needs to feel easy. It's like that worn-out t-shirt that we wear on a Sunday. It feels like a second scheme. That's how it really should, should actually feel. And that's where, the la- that's where the challenge lies. Another example, not from the anthology, but from one poem from Marie. Uh, where she's going around um, New York City with her daughter, running errands, and one of the stops they do is in the grocery store. So my first instinct was to write grocery store, like we say in Venezuela, abasto. Abasto comes from abastecer, which is to supply. So I guess if I ask you to go to the supply store and get milk and bread, you will be like, hmm,
0: where's that? Right? <laughs> and, you know... I kept on
1: looking, because I guess, I mean, you cannot make it what I said, but it really feels different. There was then the notion of supermercado, but supermercado is not a grocery store. It's bigger, I mean, supermercados are bigger, more assortment. There's even a element of modernity to the supermarket, right? So more that we actually call it supermercado, like in English. And I just want to tell you a little bit of all the ways that we talk about Grocery store because each country has a way to translate it. So in Spain, the formal way would be tienda de ultramarinos, which nobody uses because my friends are like, well, oh, do we don't say that in the home, but alimentación or comestibles, right? Tienda de abarrotes o tienda de la esquina, which is a corner shop in Mexico and parts of Central America, pulperia in Nicaragua or Costa Rica, tienda del barrio in Colombia, almacén o despensa in China and Argentina. Colmado in Dominican Republic, and even in some parts of Spain, and Abasto in Venezuela. So all of those names come from the times when different foods and produce were brought into Spain from the colonies. And because it's both so local and so rooted, going into a specific direction may turn off or turn on a reader when we actually bring the translation in. So I kept that as a story. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and that happened. The second reflection, and the other ones are a little bit shorter, so... Um, the effect of the poem needs to prevail above it all. So, um, some poems that we got sent to us um, have wordplay. And I said, oh my god, thank you so much for giving me a poem that has wordplay, and this is really <laughs> a challenge <shenanigans laughs> for a translation. Um, especially when you said it's this which
0: was it? So, I'll uh, pick up
1: on Octavio Quintanilla. He has this poem that starts with the word crow. And you start taking a letter out of it, and there's another word, like from crow to cow to owl. Now, if I do that, it will go from crow to vaca. <laughs> it has nothing to do with that. We can do like that. owl. That's not a word. So I said, you know what? Um, he wants to play with the words, so that's what I'm going to do. So I started with cuervo, and then I took out the e, and it gives me curvo, which is curvy. And then there was no way to twist that around, so I went back and I said, okay, what is a a four-letter word? And I I actually came out with "sale" by taking out the U and the V, and that up in zero. And, you know, the intention here was there were all these nested words within the poem. So that's what really, you know, trying to translate that, because that's what really prevails. Third reflection is that a great poem is able to survive the deep transformation of a translation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Joseph Simon has been doing a lot of great work with clips from um, some of the poems, where there was the original version, the, the, the audio, then the audio of the translation, and then beautiful images. So, a friend of mine, uh, which I translated, basically, Red calls um, the cry. And a friend of mine, Fernanda, Martinez from uh, from Chile, she read it and we got it, you know, we sent it to him and he put it all together. I sent it back to Fernanda I said, Oh thank you for your work, here it is. And she said, um, she sent me a text and it said, that poem is so strong that it survived your translation and my reading. <laughs> um, and what really important about what she said is that she meant that the, you know the cry that basically refers to which is that sound of one's animal's pain, setting off a chain in so many others until each cry dissolves into the next groan louder, it was able to make it from one shore to the other, even if rabbit is a conejo or sorrow is a fox or crow's is a, crab's a So that notion of what happens to one leads to the other, it really remains in both. Fourth um, reflection is that um, one must defend rhythm at all costs. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would not take for granted that a good translation would carry at least one of the meanings of the poem. But one of the things that make it really enjoyable and different is music, right? That's why it's poetry is not another literary form. So we agreed on moving words to the next verse if it's needed, or omitting I mean, others when that meaning was there, but the ear really couldn't keep on having more of those syllables being piled up. So I take Maya's binary poem uh, that was read on Monday because it was, you know, if you recall it was that the, there were two kinds of people in this world. And it requires a strong sense of rhythm because it was, it's this or that, and this and that. And that actually is, it's, that is what is beyond the meaning of the words that is really what's driving that poem. So you know we, we couldn't really dwell so much on long phrases, and um, otherwise it would have broken the magic uh, because it felt like every single, every two verses there was a fork in the road, and you have to take that intersection. The fifth reflection is building a bridge is about transporting the reader to the time and space of the poem that Oscar talked a lot about it. So if you recall, um, um, Kathleen uh, Flanagan's poem, Angel, was inspired in the 1950s yesterday, you may have recognized that we kept all bay seasoning and Portland cement unchanged. Um, so, in line with the rules of translations, but I think that actually having made a choice I would have translated that into Spanish would have been really awful, because nobody has heard about the condimentos de la vieja I would not see anything <laughs> with that, because it sounds super weird. Um, but if I would have chosen something from my childhood, which is condimentos carmencita from... Venezuela, would be like nobody really understands that. And, and beyond that, there is something very important, which is in order for that reader to cross the bridge, there needs to be another layer that he or she has to go through because there's something specific about that time and that place and what that meant. So thank God for Google right now that you can actually put it there and you can see some of those ads that she's referring to. And I think the other one that was very interesting is she refers to Peter Pan color which was maybe popular in America, UK, and some parts of Europe, but definitely Latin America, it wasn't. So we really had to make some twists around it. And we said, let me just keep it like that, because that's a, a reference for, for, for that moment. Um, the sixth reflection is making a decision in the absence of the author um, is always a risk. And you know, as Oscar said, you don't, you, don't, you don't have always the opportunity to talk to them. Um, some of you know uh, we gender adjectives in Spanish. So it's very interesting when I got to translate Richard Scott's uh, poem, My Stag, which is about a boy who's taking apart a stag beetle, like the little pieces in the... Um, and, and then uh, to show the bravery he's eating them. But the most interesting piece to me was that... Do you know, I mean, it's who is telling the anecdote. So in the absence of gender, I had to decide if the narrator was a boy or a girl. And that was, uh, would really twist things around because I'll just tell you how it ends. It says, after that little boy is um, taking apart the insect, the voice that is talking says, I wipe his pink mouth with my vertex sleeve, proudly grip his surgeon's hand, beneath the, ba- beneath the batter lunch bench, desperate for his kiss. So we were able to take with Richard, but I had already made up my mind, in the absence of him talking <laughs> to him, <there laughs> actually was done. I actually was inclined to make the narrator a boy. Because in many ways, it's the meaning that was closer to my reading. But also, um, it would another another layer specific to this moment in time that we're living in. And I think it was such a beautiful poem to be told that way. And he agreed that it was. And then the last reflection is my final reflection is, when you translate, you not only rewrite, but you get exposed to the work of others. And like good radiation, like the one that comes from the sun, that energy, you will carry it with you. And this is the best gift that, every, um, that each and every one of you have given me. Because it is by reading these poems and seeing with my own eyes how that muddy water turns clear, I got to embody your work, not just from a single translation, but from my own writing. So when Jenny Johnson was reading the, the poem the other day, there was one specific verse that said, and how would it fail to straddle the soul horse? And I realized that I actually had that same image she created when I wrote a poem like three weeks after that. Or similarly, Catriona O'Reilly's poem called The Glass Sponge, there's an underwater effect in that poem. And I actually was writing something else where as a child, I thought about falling into my school classroom's blackboard as one going to the depths of the sea to find oneself. So to me, this is the most precious part of translating, crossing the the crossing that bridge and carrying your work with me. Thank you.
0: So much of Jorge's talk has stayed with me over these weeks. Most of all, the confirmation that there are no single versions of any language, and rather than this being daunting to the translator, it can be something that they delight in, experiment with, and play with. Especially for the poet-translator or translator-writer, these multiplicities can give fuel and fire to their own creative practice and give rise to new and exciting work. If you look for it, You will begin to see these gems popping up everywhere. The Friday morning of the festival week, I went on a creative walking tour slash workshop with poet and translator Curtis Bauer. I'll get to that tour more, I think in a later episode, but Bauer also recently shared a wonderful piece from the Kenyon Review online for May and June called Translator's Note, Voicing a Voice by Mira Rosenthal. The piece is subtitled 49 Questions About Power, originality, performance, and what we mean when we talk about the translator's voice in the translated text. I was instantly charmed and taken with her meditations on translation, both feeling a little too seen and delightfully pegged by her observations. For example, number six. When I get annoyed that this poet keeps using the same vague word over and over that could mean anything from footprints to marks to traces to tracks to vestiges to remains, is my frustration a sign of the difference in our voices? Number seven, when I choose to translate that one vague word differently in each of the 13 instances it appears in his collection, is this an example of me claiming my voice? Number 10, does my tongue twitch with the words on the page or the English of the translation that begins straight away to form in my head? 11, when I give a public reading with a poet, who reads first? 12, Would you rather take in the poet's voice first as simply sonic texture, or do you like first to know a little of the meaning of the sounds before you hear them? Rosenthal's translation practice has obviously and wonderfully sprawled beyond translation itself and into her own creative practice, and I can't help but become obsessed by these kinds of exercises, and am now on the hunt for more. Well, in the spirit of those month-based sayings from the beginning of this episode, I was also reminded of learning about the idiom, heavy in June, light in August, when reading William Faulkner's Light in August during my undergrad university studies. Our professor explained to us that the title is often misunderstood as referring solely to autumn light, when it is really calling to this phrase that describes how cows are heavy in june when they're pregnant with their calves and then light in august sure enough i remember seeing a copy in spanish translation with the title "Luz en agosto mistaking the visual light for a feeling of lightness and thinking that something like ligero in agosto would indeed sound very strange out of the context of the idiom. It would need a footnote. This is a roundabout way of working in that I am quite heavy this June, but will be lighter in August when I will be taking maternity leave for a few months. But I will be back with more episodes in the winter. And until then, I'm wishing everyone a full harvest of happy accidents. I'd also like to leave you all with an amazing quote and request from our one-of-a-kind Asymptote site and encourage you all to give your support to our World Literature Project. George Bernard Shaw famously said, if you have an apple and I have an apple and we exchange apples, then you and I will each still have one apple. But if you have an idea and I have an idea and we exchange those ideas, then each of us will have two ideas. It is in the spirit of sharing ideas that Asymptote invites readers to explore work from across the globe. Incorporated neither in America nor in Europe, unaffiliated with any university or government body, Asymptote does not qualify for many grants that other like institutions receive. So, if you enjoy our magazine, our blog, these podcasts, our amazing contests, or any one of the many facets of Asymptote Journal, please help us continue our mission by becoming a sustaining member at just $10 a month. Just now, in return for pledging at least one year's support, you'll receive an Asim Tokmolsky notebook where you can start some projects of your very own. Happy translating.